It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. In today's recording, I'll chat with Megan and Mara about the first third of Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. This time, the quote of the day comes from a book by Edmund Burke called Reflections on the Revolution in France. It's a book I really wanted to have excerpts of in the syllabus, but alas, there was just no no time or space. It's one of the most famous literary reactions to the French Revolution. And we'll be talking about it more in class, but for now, here's just a small taste of it. Burke says this, But what is liberty without wisdom and without virtue? It is the greatest of all possible evils, for it is folly, vice, and madness without tuition or restraint. This is a book in which Burke explores the reasons for the French terror, the reasons why the revolution got so violent so quickly. In the next recording, the quote of the day will be from Mary Wollstonecraft's response to Burke's book, an essay called A Vindication of the Rights of Men. For more on liberty and tyranny and revolution and the wonderful details of Dickens' novel, let's go into that chat with me and Megan and Mara. Hello. Well, let's get started. I thought maybe the first question should be, this is the French Revolution book. It is not written in the 18th century. It's written in the 19th century, published, I think, in 1859. I just wanted to get your guys' opinions about why an author would use fiction to portray historical events. Um, We might think this is quite an unreliable source to learn history from maybe that's true we should all of course be reading history as well but yeah what do you think fiction can offer a study of history for me it makes me relate more to the characters because they're not i mean i relate to real characters and like historic like history books but i think it's really hard to portray someone who's real and like put a spin on them if that makes sense I feel like fictional characters are easy to get all of the emotion in and start from scratch and build what you want them to be like rather than starting with a person who has lived through this and like lived through this actual process. It makes them a little bit harder to shape into a storyline. So I think with fiction, it's easier to shape a storyline and maybe bring out certain aspects of the history that you want to be seen. Yeah, we love stories. That's something about the human creature. I mean, one of the ongoing questions of this course is, what is a human? And uh, one of the thousands of answers is, a human is something that loves stories. So perhaps it's a more attractive way to learn true things about the past if you can build non-true narratives around them. We're, we're more attracted. We're more drawn to those. Yeah? I don't know. Mara, what would you add? 
Yeah, I totally agree. I think having, I think fictional characters we can even relate to a lot more and history by itself can enlighten us. But we can, I think we can come out of fiction, like out of reading fiction, a lot more changed, a lot more connected to what's happening. And like we can see these characters a little bit more as ourselves. A lot more changed. I love that comment. I'm reminded of what Azar Nafisi says in reading Lolita in Tehran. A novel is, this isn't exactly her phrasing, but it's something like it's the recreation of an experience that we just inhale. So we embody an experience when we read fiction in a way that maybe we don't when we're reading history or nonfiction. And because we embody it for so long and we're kind of inhaling it and it's entering us and we're entering it, we do indeed come out of it, I think, more profoundly changed, more slightly more affected, and more moved. This book has maybe say, the most famous sentence in English, maybe not the most famous sentence in English, but certainly in the top five, right? It's a sentence that everyone has heard or read or knows about, even if they've never read the book. So I think I should read it. And then I wanted to pick your guys' brains about I don't want to spend like 20 minutes on this sentence, although I think we probably could, and they would be productive minutes. I wanted to pick your guys' brains about why you think this sentence is so famous. And we can talk about its structure as a sentence. Like, I don't know, maybe there's something about the grammar or the syntax or the imagery or the phrasing that's made it so memorable and lasting, but also what you think about the ways in which this sentence sets up the themes of the book, summarizes um, the story that we're about to engage in, that we're about to be enveloped by, this is it. You all know it. You've all heard it. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Yeah, why is this so famous? It's so full of these paradoxes that it, well, I think it's just so hard to describe what is being described. And so these paradoxes seem to do the best that can possibly be done and I think that it's the only way to describe how you feel or how something appears and I think it, it really interested me when I read it and I, I think it just beckons to us to keep reading because we're like how can it be the best and the worst something really great that we're about to read that's a great comment you I think you said two really important things I'll start with the second it beckons us in it's a great hook you know it, it immediately piques our curiosity but also what you said about the nature of paradox paradox itself it's it's not technically possible, I guess, for it to be both the best of times and the worst of times. And yet we don't disbelieve this claim. We, th we think, oh, I know what that must be like. I know what that means. The human being is so paradoxical. You know, we've talked a little bit about this already. We're capable of such extreme goodness and such extreme evil. We are incredibly wise and incredibly foolish, right? We are incredibly strong and yet incredibly weak and vulnerable and frail. So these kinds of paradoxes do not surprise us. Just one thing I noticed about just his writing style in general, like mm. this first sentence really sets it up, is that he repeats things like certain phrases multiple times. Like in this first huge sentence, right, our English teachers are like, this is a run-on sentence, right? But for us, it's such a powerful sentence. He repeats it was five times, I think. Actually more, more than five times. 
that alone is just so powerful because he doesn't even explain like he does not explain what it was it was the best of times and for us we can put in anything as it oh my life was the best of times my life was the worst of times the chapter is called the period so you could put in the period was the best of times so i think that's just really interesting and he even says in this paragraph like um yeah he says in short the period was so far like the present period so back then so this novel was written was published i think began to be published in 1859 He's writing, he, the story begins, he says, it was the year of our Lord, 1,775. So somebody do the math for me. About 80 years, 85 years in the past, three quarters of a century ago. But he says it was very much like our day now. So Megan, that's a great comment. It could be now, it could be then, it could be all times, it could be our lives, it could be everyone's lives. This pronoun, I think, it, it, it is important. And also the repetition. I, th- I think if we were going to, I love what you say about English teachers. This is a run-on sentence. It does seem to break a lot of rules that our English teachers say we shouldn't break, like repetition or run-on sentences. But don't you think the run-on sentence helps give this sentence a kind of cumulative musical force and power? A kind of crescendo is built up. Also the repetitions, it was, it was, it was. It's like the beat of a drum, you know? It's such a rhetorically and musically forceful sentence, it's hard to forget. Descri- if I ask you to describe his style as an author, what kind of sentences does he write? How is the style distinctive? What's the best part about it? What is he especially good at describing or doing as a writer? What would you say? For me, I think he is really, really good at descriptions. There is a part, it is further in the back, and I have like a billion bookmarks, but he's talking about the jackal. And he's explaining one of the characters as a jackal and the other one as a lion. And I think that's just so interesting because instead of just describing all of their character traits, he just puts on this animal that we know the character traits of. And sometimes they do get really lengthy, but I think it's to show the depth of that character and like how thought out that character is. So that's one thing I've noticed. Yeah. And he just wants to paint as much detail as he can about this world. So he really, he really will linger on a character for a long time. Mara, any thoughts about his style? Some characters I notice just by by describing the smallest movements of their of their face or like what they're doing just in a few sentences I can see like the mannerisms of this character like even predict what the character might do next or I can already see like personality coming out just by a few sentences. He's one of those authors that immediately in the first sentence of a description of a character or as soon as that character opens his or her mouth and says something he or she seems totally real. I can't find it now. I'm trying to flip through my book here. I should have underlined it. He describes this man as having hair that is so spiky that you would not want to play leapfrog with him because (laughs) you would be afraid of landing on him and getting stabbed. You remember this? I thought, wow, this is just so great. It's like half a sentence and it's this this character is instantly real. Well, there's a few more things on the first page I wanted to talk about. So yeah, there's the first sentence. This is the second paragraph, the beginning of the second sentence. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face on the throne of England. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a fair face on the throne of France. In both countries, it was clearer than crystal to the lords of the state preservers of loaves and fishes that things in general were settled forever. Highlighting that last sentence, that things in general were settled forever. There's something about every age that thinks this about itself, I think. And I just wanted to prod you into revealing any thoughts that you have about how you think that this time, 2021, is similar. Is the best of times and the worst of times? Is a spring of hope or a winter of despair? A time in which we seem to have everything before us and nothing before us. 
Is this still true? Do we think this about our current day and age? What do you guys think? And do, and I'll add to this, do we think that it's things are more or less settled forever? Maybe we don't. In our age, we have all this technology, which helps us live so much better than all these other past ages. So in that sense, it is like the best of times. So there's so many ways in the world today that people can take advantage of each other and uh, all these bad things are happening around us. And so in that way, it could be the worst it's ever been. Yeah. I mean, we have all this comfort in technology, but is social media the best thing ever or the worst thing ever? I don't know. That's a healthy debate. I would agree. And like, especially right now with COVID, we are in a unique situation where it is like the best of times because we can be at home with our families, you know, but it also is the worst of times because people are unhealthy. People, you know, our hospitals are filled. People are dying, which is very sad. So it is the worst of times, but it's the best of times. And it is the age of wisdom. Like we have gained Mm. so much knowledge through this virus, but it also is the age of foolishness. Like what some people, like the actions of some people, Mm. what they're doing. So just like, it's a very interesting especially right now. Like, I don't think this would have such an impact on me as it has now because of this pandemic that we are living in. And like the one that really sticks out is it was the season of light. There's been a lot of hope raised around like this pandemic. A lot of people have turned more towards the church or more towards others, you know? And so that's really impactful, but it's also the season of darkness. You look outside in the world and there is death and there is sadness and riots and all of this stuff. And so I just think that's right now it's just a really interesting interplay. So it's great. And mental health, our, our all of our mental health is more precarious now because of this isolation. And yeah, I love what you say about wisdom and foolishness. I mean, these vaccines have been developed with incredible speed. That's a real miracle. It's like the biggest scientific win in many years, many, many years, maybe. It's a season of wisdom. Absolutely. But yet, it's like every other step along this process is being bungled about the rollouts and how to get these vaccines to the right people at the right time and misinformation about them and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's just so much, so much combined foolishness and wisdom at the same time. So we should get into the story. Doesn't this book open quite mysteriously? Were you not rather confused? I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Who, Who was confused in the first few pages? I'm raising my hand. Um, So this is my first general question. Why have the beginning of your book contained so much mystery? It really hooked me. I was like, I have to know what is going on. I kind of started feeling it around like the chapter about the wine shop. That's where Mm. I kind of started understanding like, oh, this is where we're generally going. Right. Or like the chapter kind of before it kind of leads into that, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, for me, it just hooked me and made me think more about these characters that we're seeing and not necessarily starting with, we're in the middle of the French Revolution, there's death everywhere, all these bad things are happening. It was kind of like a leading up to that, which was nice. Yeah. So a man, Marib, I'd love to hear your thoughts too, but a man, it, it opens with a man stopping a mail coach that is traveling from London to Dover. This man we find out is Jerry Cruncher. He's been sent on a message from a bank. He wants to give this message to a passenger on this coach, whose name is Jarvis Laurie. And Laurie sends Jerry back to the bank with a message that is very cryptic. The message is recalled to life. And we as readers have no idea what's going on. We have no idea what this message means. We have no idea what who is being referred to. We find out in the subsequent chapters that 
This message refers to Alexander Manette, who is this old French doctor. He was just released from the Bastille prison after a long imprisonment. Laurie takes Manette's daughter, Lucy, to France to meet him. Manette is staying at, in the home of the Defarges, who we'll get to know more later. Another question, another related question is why start in the middle of a story? Why not start with 18 years ago? Why did Dr. Manette get arrested? Why not start at the beginning? Mara, I've talked too much. What do you think about the weird opening of this book and why it starts the way it does? Well, I was just really interested in the symbolism, I guess, of being brought back to life, being dug out of a grave. That's probably not how I would have began a book on the French Revolution. With that, we have this symbol of life instead of death and I just think that was really interesting and that maybe uh, no matter what other despairing things you encounter in this book that there's that message underlying there of that life excellent this is an excellent comment it's it's so good that I want everybody listening to flag it in their minds put a little tag on it because I can't spoil the ending yet maybe you haven't gotten to the ending but I want everybody listening to remember what Mara just said when they get to the very end the book starts with this resurrection, and I think it – how do I say this without spoiling the ending? Um, it starts this way for reasons of structural importance. Okay, It starts with a resurrection for, I think, deliberate structural reasons. This is very good. Yeah, let's talk about the wine shop. I love this passage so much. So this is chapter 5, part 1, chapter 5. For me, to be honest, this is when – I read this novel a few times. I remember the first time I did. This is when the novel really hooked me, really came alive for me, because I just think this description is so good. I guess after I read this, I'll ask you guys to weigh in on why do you think Dickens is using this particular image of the spilled wine to introduce French society? Why this? And again, I'm not fishing for the correct answer. Just as a reader, how did this make you feel about the French people? So this is the wine shop. I'll I'm, it's going to be hard to restrain myself, but I'll, I'll read until I can hear people snoring. <laughs> I know you guys won't fall asleep. You know what I mean. Here we go. A large cask of wine had been dropped and broken in the street. The accident had happened in getting it out of the cart. The cask had tumbled out with a run. The hoops had burst, and it lay on the stones just outside the door of the wine shop, shattered like a walnut shell. All the people within reach had suspended their business or their idleness, to run to the spot and drink the wine. The rough, irregular stones of the street pointing every way and designed, one might have thought, expressly to lame all living creatures that approached them, had dammed it into little pools. These were surrounded, each by its own jostling group or crowd, according to its size. Some men kneeled down, made scoops of their two hands joined, and sipped, or tried to help women, who bent over their shoulders to sip, before the wine had all run out between their fingers. Others men and women, dipped in the puddles with little mugs of mutilated earthenware, or even with handkerchiefs from women's heads, which were squeezed dry into infants' mouths. Others made small mud embankments to stem the wine as it ran. Others, directed by lookers-on up at high windows, darted here and there to cut off little streams of wine that had started away in new directions. Others devoted themselves to the sodden and lee-dyed pieces of the cask, licking and even champing the moister, wine-rotted fragments with eager relish. There was no drainage to carry off the wine, and not only did it all get taken up, but so much mud got taken up along with it that there might have been a scavenger in the street if anybody acquainted with it could have believed in such a miraculous presence. And so 
They're so, all so thirsty for this wine that they're even taking in significant quantities of mud and they're chewing on the wood, the fragments of wood of the wine cask. I don't want the question to be, what is what does the scene really mean? You know what I mean? I don't think there are quote unquote hidden meanings, but why why introduce French society this way? What effect does it have on you? Well, when I usually think of French society, I, I expected for us to be introduced to some, some of the rich people or people of higher class, but now we're introduced to all these poor people who get they get so excited about this wine built in the street and because that's all they've seen for days. And I think that's interesting that it was wine and not something more mundane. You know, the upper class people would have had wine as like a treat, but these poor people are seeing it and that's that's what can quench their thirst and their hunger. So they're going after it. Yeah, that's right. We, when we think of Paris, we think of maybe luxury or a refinement, but no, he's giving us a totally different perspective on this city, a city drowning in deprivation and hunger and poverty. Poverty that is driving them to sop up muddy wine into handkerchiefs and then wring out this liquid into the mouths of their babies. It's just like so vivid and surprising. I find it so surprising. Yeah, Megan, what would you add? Yeah, so I actually marked this whole passage because I loved this part. I think it just brings in that these people were not treated as people. And so Mm. they're acting like scavengers, like they're acting like animals because that's Mm. what they've been treated like. They have had to go out hunting for their food because there's not enough in their houses. You know, there's not enough liquid or water to take care of their children. So they've gone out and done these irrational things for this because that's that's the point of life that they're at. Like they haven't been treated as people, they have been treated as animals. Yeah, and they're driven to desperation, this kind of desperate frenzy. And I wouldn't exactly call them a mob, but it is, I would say, the prelude to a mob, the prelude to the mobs that we will see later on in the book. You know what I mean? So he wants to kind of foreshadow what a group of people can be forced into if they're under enough pressure. Mara, yeah, you're right about, um, it's interesting that it's wine and not water. You know, or even any other liquid. It, I think it has to be red, right? He says on the next page, the wine was red wine. And immediately, we I mean, I, maybe not all of us, start thinking of blood, right? The, the streets become soaked in this red liquid. And um, Dickens doesn't want this to be left as a hint. So he even says this, those who had been greedy with the staves of the cask had acquired a tigerish smear about the mouth. This is corroborating Megan's point about them being treated as animals and therefore acting animalistically. They have tigerish smears about the mouth. And one tall joker so besmirched his head more out of a long squalid bag of a nightcap than in it, scrawled upon a wall with his finger dipped in muddy wine leaves, blood. Right? This wonderfully blatant, obvious symbol, this foreshadowing of the blood that will be spilt in the revolution yet to come. I think Dickens' portrayal of the French people I mean, you would expect, he. so he's an English author, you might expect him to be slightly, I don't know, pro-English, you know, have a slight pro-English bias. But I can tell that he has real affinity and sympathy for these people. I mean, if you just look at the next page, like, oh no, I guess down on the same page, 32, he describes them like this, samples of a people that had undergone a terrible grinding and regrinding in the mill, and certainly not in the fabulous mill, which ground old people young 
The mill which had worked them down was the mill that grinds young people old. The children had ancient faces and grave voices, and upon them and upon the grown faces, and plowed into every furrow of age and coming up afresh was the sign, Hunger. It was prevalent everywhere. Hunger was pushed out of the tall houses, etc. And then, then that becomes a new refrain. We have several successive sentences beginning with this word, Hunger, Hunger, Hunger. So this is a crowd of French people. Um, soon enough, we get a crowd of English people. This is at the trial of this man named Charles Darnay. I mean, we're skipping over the bit where, like the shoemaker chapter, where maybe we shouldn't skip over this. Does anyone have anything to say about the shoemaker chapter? So Lucy is taken up to this room where this old man is, and he has no memory, and he is busy making these shoes or miming the movements of making shoes. He doesn't know where he is. He's delirious. And he kind of glints at Lucy, who we learn or we, we kind of understand as his daughter. Maybe we should say one or two things about this scene. And this is like a horrible English teacher question. What do you think? How did you react to this scene? Well, I, I thought it was interesting that when they were walking up there, Lucy was almost afraid to see her father. She had never known him and she knew that what she would see would not be what she wanted to see. Yeah, extreme trepidation and horror. That's exactly right. She has been deprived of getting to know him. And as you say, Mara, it's not even him that she's about to see. It's a kind of ghost of him or a kind of broken version of him. Yeah. Yeah, I reacted like the same way to the beginning. But the one part that I have marked is when she has gotten closer to him and she's rocking him. And she says, it's on 48, and it says, If when I tell you, dearest dear, that your agony is over and that I have come here to take you from it, and that we go to England to be at rest, at peace and at rest. I cause you to think of your useful life, laid waste, and of our native France, so wicked to you. Weep for it, weep for it. And there's more on top of that. Um, and she just keeps saying, like, just keep weeping, right? Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was really beautiful. This daughter that's never really known her father is just like, it's okay, you can cry. Like, you can be sad about what happened to you. Like, what happened to you was wrong. Your homeland, basically you know, turned against you, which is not something that should happen, but did. And so I just really liked that paragraph of like the daughter just stepping up to her dad and saying, it's okay, I'm here. Like you can cry. It's okay. So. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, we, we read in Ecclesiastes, there's a time to mourn, you know, or there's a time to weep. We won't be reading this moment later on. We're going to be reading a chunk of Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Not included in the chunk that we'll be reading is this wonderful moment where these Russian women who have just lost their children, their children have just died, come to this Russian monk and ask him for some kind of consolation. And he says to them, I mean, they're expecting some kind of healing religious answer. And his answer to them is weep and be not comforted. <laughs> this is wonderful permission. Like your job right now is to feel grief. You know, that's what you're, that's what you're supposed to do. Allowing ourselves to mourn when it's time to mourn. So they take Alexander away. Alexander Manette, the Dr. Manette, is being kept in the house of the Defages, who we don't know a lot about yet, but look at the very end of the first book. So this is the chapter called The Shoemaker, book one, chapter six. We are introduced to this character of Madame Defarge, who so far only is a presence who stays quiet in the corners knitting. They take Dr. Manette down the stairs and out into the street, and this is what the narrator says. No crowd was about the door, no people were discernible at any of the many windows, not even a chance passerby was in the street, and an unnatural silence and desertion reigned there. 
Only one soul was to be seen, and that was Madame Defarge, who leaned against the doorpost, knitting, and saw nothing. The next paragraph, Madame Defarge immediately called to her husband that she would get them and went, knitting, out of the lamplight through the courtyard. She quickly brought them down and handed them in, and immediately afterwards leaned against the doorpost, knitting, and saw nothing. Very ominous repetition that I just kind of want to signal and flag, yeah? Five years later, we are transported to England, and there is a trial, and someone is on, on trial, a man named Charles Darnay, and he is being accused of being a traitor, being a spy. I don't know if you find this question interesting, but I just find it interesting that uh, Charles Dickens gives us a French crowd, and then he gives us an English crowd. Do we want to describe those differences? How is the English crowd at this trial? So all these people, all these civilians gather around to see what's who's on trial and what's going on. How is the English crowd different? How, how do they behave differently? How are they described differently? Is the mood different? Yeah, how are they different? There are all these guys that are wearing wigs and nice clothes, and they're all sitting there watching entertainment, really. They're, it even says on page 63, you know, like, what's, what's on or what, what's coming on? Like, it's a show they're watching. Yeah, I love that. So it presents them as, I don't know, maybe slightly bored or, yeah, this is, this is their version of entertainment. I think it's really interesting that he chooses to use a quartering case, a body quartering case. I didn't mark it, but he describes the quartering and it was so gruesome to me. And like these people are just sitting there like watching this man, like they know exactly what quartering is. Yeah. And they're just like, ooh, I hope it happens, right? Like, ooh, I hope we get more out of this. Like yeah, yeah. that we can watch someone's life like be literally torn apart yeah. is so interesting. Instead of letting people squander in the streets, right? They would rather just put them on trial and then watch them like squirm almost, which is interesting. It, it, so this is book. This is part two. Chap. Sorry, yeah. Book two, chapter two. This chapter is called the sight. And on the top of page sixty-four, this is the moment you're referring to, Megan. Uh, what's coming on? Well, that's the moment Mara referred to. What's coming on? Someone re- responds. A treason case. The quartering one, eh? Ah, the man returned with a relish. He'll be drawn on a hurdle to be half hanged, and then he'll be taken down and sliced before his own face, and then his inside will be taken out and burnt while he looks on, and then his head will be chopped off, and he'll be cut into quarters. That's the sentence. And they all, as you say, I won't go on, but they all secretly hope that he's... I don't think that they hope that he's guilty, but they hope that if he is guilty, this will happen to him. They want traitors to be treated this way. Um, I guess I could ask why. Is that an interesting question? What, maybe it's not. Why do they want traitors and spies to be treated this way? This whole part, it's like he will watch what's happening to his body, right? Like he will be kept alive enough to see. It's kind of like, you know, you've watched our country. You know, you committed treason against our country and yeah. you've watched that happen. So you should watch what happens to your own body when that happens. You've helped your country kind of be quartered in a way. Mm. So you're going to watch your own body be quartered, right? Excellent. Like in a way. That's great. I also think, do you guys think this sounds like I'm leading the witness now in my own trial here? Do, don't you think that, I don't mean it to sound like that, instead of a mob, I don't, I shouldn't say mob, instead of a almost mob lapping up spilt wine, what we have here is an, I'm not going to say almost mob, people are quartering him in their minds but they're all obeying the rules they're not causing a ruckus i mean the onlookers of this trial but instead of a almost mob lapping up spilled wine 
we have the proceedings of a legal trial. We have a court of law. I find that suggestive. I find that that might suggest that even if the onlookers are slightly bloodthirsty, and they indeed are, there is some societal, institutional, civilizational mechanism in place to treat criminals. The mob isn't simply allowed, you know, this isn't mob justice. This is the rule of law. I think that's important. I don't know. Any thoughts about this? Like I said about the French is it's portraying them as if they've been treated like animals, right? Like they've, they've been given nothing. And so they have to scavenge for things or scour for things. And the English people instead have been treated fairly. So I think that's really interesting is that like these people that have been treated unfairly and these people are being treated fairly. So I think. And the trial, the trial kind of works. I mean, it's doing its job. Charles Darnay, there are these witnesses who say, oh, I saw him conversing with known French spies. And the prosecutor says, "You or the defense attorney says, and are you sure that you would never mistake him for another man? And the witness says, yes, I am sure I wouldn't. And then the, the defense attorney says, well, if you look at my colleague and turns to Sidney Carton, wouldn't you agree that my colleague looks remarkably similar to Charles Darnay? And everyone in the course is like, wow, they're like twins. They look like twins, you know? This immediately undercuts the witness's assertion that he could recognize Charles Darnay anywhere. And Charles Darnay is acquitted and is freed. So this is a win for justice, I think. This is kind of the legal system working. It might, it might be slightly creaky. It's not going to be perfect. The crowd looking on might be thirsting for blood. But when faulty evidence is shown to be faulty, we don't just hang people because we want to. I think, yeah, you're right, Megan, that this is illustrating one reason that societies don't devolve into revolutionary madness is because they have institutions that, you know, they might be imperfect on the margins, but for the most part, keep innocent people free and keep guilty people hung, drawn, and quartered, or at least in prison. Yeah. There's this plot device that Charles Dickens is using about the lookalikes, the doppelgangers. Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton look identical, supposedly. As a reader, do you buy this? Is this something you roll your eyes at? Well, it confused me a little at first. I was like, why are these two characters being compared? It is confusing. But uh, afterward, when Sidney Carton is talking to Charles Darnay, uh, he gives the impression that they they could be friends. Like as you're reading, you understand afterward that Sidney Carton he he doesn't he doesn't like Darnay and he's he's jealous. I want you to keep talking about this moment, Mara. I'm going to ask you why don't why doesn't Sidney Carton like Charles Darnay? You are referring to this moment in the end of chapter four. I guess a better question is describe what kind of person is Sidney Carton. I guess that's a better question. So if we go to the end of chapter four, yeah, you're right. They're talking outside of the court. Charles Darnay says, I think you have been drinking, Mr. Carton. Sidney Carton says, think? You know I have been drinking. Charles Darnay, since I must say so, I know it. Sidney Carton responds, then you shall likewise know why. I am a disappointed drudge, sir. I care for no man on earth, and no man on earth cares for me. Charles Darnay responds, much to be regretted. You might have used your talents better. When he was left alone, this strange being took up a candle, went to a glass, a mirror that hung against the wall, and surveyed himself minutely in it. 
Do you particularly like the man? He muttered at his own image. Why should you particularly like a man who resembles you? There is nothing in, in you to like. You know that. Ah, confound you. What a change you have made in yourself. A good reason for taking to a man that he shows you what you have fallen away from and what you might have been. Etc., etc. You hate the fellow. What kind of a person is Sidney Carton? He thinks he's wasted his life, pretty much. So he's kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't know if lazy is the right word, but he, he thinks there's nothing left going for him. And he sees Charles Darnay, who has just been acquitted and who has this possibly great success. And he saw that Lucy had compassion on him. There's like something mm. in between them. And Sidney Carton's like, so since we're so similar, why doesn't this mean that I could have some potential. I, there's, no, like, there's nothing for me that's quite as good as what Darnay has. I love that you allude to this moment where Sidney Carton notices how enraptured Lucy is with Charles Darnay. She more or less can't take her eyes off of him. And Sidney Carton is, I think, in a word, jealous. You say lazy. You're not wrong. I mean, he's a drunkard who has decided for whatever reason that he has no potential. What is it like to be in the presence of a person who is succeeding in ways that maybe you secretly suspect you could succeed at if you just tried harder? What does that feel like? I don't know. I feel like there is a sense of almost disappointment in yourself. And I feel like disappointment is like, for me, one of the worst emotions. If I disappoint someone, I have, you know, failed. So I feel like for him he's disappointed himself or there might be someone that we don't know of on the side that's really disappointed in him that he hasn't gone further. And so it's just kind of shaped his life a little bit more and that he's, he's disappointed with himself now too. You know, for me, when there's someone that I'm compared to or, you know, and I'm like, man, I could be that great, but I'm not. So then I just give up. Right. And so I feel like that might be where he's at. And we resent, I mean, he says, I hate the man. Oh, you hate the fellow. He says, he says, you hate the fellow. We hate, why, why the hatred? Why do you hate people who, you, why does one, why does one hate people who are better versions of oneself? Envy is a, is a very strong emotion. And even if this other person isn't like doing anything to you purposely, you just feel they're in your way. And because that person's there, he's achieving what, you know, we possibly could have instead. And so that, I don't know. It just, it just leaves us feeling like that's someone we don't like. Be yeah, exactly. Because we we see in them our own failed efforts. So I love that he looks in this mirror, you know, because when he looks at Charles Darnay, he's seeing a mirror image of his own wasted potential, um, his own laziness. It's uncomfortable to stand in the presence of extremely accomplished people. It's uncomfortable to stand in the presence of God. You know, I mean, I imagine, not that I would know. I imagine it is, though, because what is revealed to us is the, all the ways in which we are lacking, you know. So I just want to make the point that it's a very common and human reaction to look at an image of realized potential and turn envious and hateful. This is bad. We should not react this way. It's very natural and common, and it happens to me all the time. This book is illustrating a way in which that is a kind of corruptive reaction. We should all be striving to have an opposite reaction. 
just like be inspired and pushed towards greater levels of accomplishment. So there's this French, what is he? A French what? A marquis, that's what he is. And he's driving through the town. Somebody, let's spend three minutes. Describe him for me. Describe him for us. What kind of person is this marquis? And what are the scenes in which uh, his character as a person is revealed? For me, he seems almost like royalty in a way. Like he sits high up in his carriage and he goes about this town and people ask him for help. And he just is like, here's money. Take it. Leave me alone. If I don't have to see it, it's not my fault. Like, it's not my problem, right? And so, and not that all royalty is, like, above their people, right? Um, But to me, he just seems like royalty and that he is wealthy. But he's also kind of arrogant and that he doesn't care about the people around him. Like, I'll just throw money at it because money's the problem solver, you know? Excellent. To me, he seems kind of a one-dimensional character. Like, we don't get to see any of the good things that he might have done or anything uh we just see how he wants to live and where all of his problems are solved and he doesn't like the outside world again like megan said isn't isn't really his problem even when it is his problem he runs over this child his carriage his horses kill this child and he what's his solution like megan said he just flings a coin at this crowd this grieving crowd he gets out of the carriage and he's like why is everyone wailing why does that? Why does he make that abominable noise? The father is grieving this dead child, and the marquis says, "Why does he make that abominable noise? Is it his child?" Beyond inhuman levels of, I think, Mara, you're probably right. This is rather one-dimensional in that he's just a stand-in for the ways in which upper levels of a hierarchy in a society can can so fully ignore the bottom levels that yeah, the bottom levels have no choice but to do what we will see them do in the future chapters of this book. Okay, do any of you have anything you want to say about the first third of this novel that we haven't said yet before I let you go? I, I just wanted to say that I really loved the, the comparison of the English crowd at the trial to these blue flies. I, I also love just the, the half sentence there, buzzing buzzing from the blue flies. Like that's that's all you get and I mean that's funny. But and I was I was looking up blue flies today and they're like especially known for feeding on dead things. They're all congregated here because they're expecting for this person to die after this trial. And so they're all, they have this like savage fascination with it. And then afterward, at the end, it says, at the end, a loud buzz swept into the street on page 82, as if the baffled blue flies were dispersing in search of other carrion. Mm. If you couldn't find it here, let's go somewhere else. (laughs) That's so great. It testifies to Dickens' power as an author to conjure the attitude and the movements and the sounds of a crowd. But also it testifies, I'm so glad you brought this up, like um, there might be details that are worth chewing on and Googling and looking into, you know, they will reveal other layers of meaning. This is great. But thank you both for a great, great chat. Thank you. Bye, guys. As we have talked about and will keep talking about, There were many reasons for many people to be excited early on about the French Revolution and the liberty that it seemed to promise. One such person was William Wordsworth, the British Romantic poet and a personal favorite of mine. In his long autobiographical poem called The Prelude, he expresses both joy and celebration at the commencement of the revolution and horror at how it later on became so bloody. 
So the poem of the day this time is going to be an excerpt from the prelude in which he expresses this early enthusiasm. And the poem of the day next time will be another excerpt from Wordsworth's The Prelude, in which he expresses his condemnation of the violence of the revolution. So this is William Wordsworth describing his early reaction to the French Revolution. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. Oh, times in which the meager, stale, forbidding ways of custom, law, and statute took at once the attraction of a country in romance, when reason seemed the most to assert her rights, when most intent on making of herself a prime enchantress to assist the work which then was going forward in her name. Not favored spots alone, but the whole earth, the beauty war of promise, that which sets, as at some moment might not be unfelt among the bowers of paradise itself, the budding rose above the rose full-blown. What temper at the prospect did not wake to happiness unthought of? The inert were roused, and lively natures rapt away. They who had fed their childhood upon dreams, the playfellows of fancy, who had made all powers of swiftness, subtlety, and strength their ministers, who in lordly wise had stirred among the grandest objects of the sense and dealt with whatsoever they found there, as if they had within some lurking right to wield it, they too, who of gentle mood, had watched all gentle motions, and to these had fitted their own thoughts, schemers more wild, and in the region of their peaceful selves, now was it that both found the meek and lofty did both find helpers to their heart's desire, and stuff at hand, plastic as they could wish, were called upon to exercise their skill, not in utopia, subterranean fields, or some secreted island heaven knows where, but in the very world, which is the world of all of us, the place where in the end we find our happiness or not at all. That's it for now. The next recording will be about the middle chunk of A Tale of Two Cities. Keep reading. Make sure you don't fall behind. And mostly just keep enjoying the readings. Mm-hmm.